0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to One Great 150, our deep dive into 150 years ish of uh, Winnipeg history. This is episode four. Yep. And this is on a guy I know pretty well. Yeah. Francis Evan Cornish. This is an exciting one. This is an exciting one. We didn't introduce ourselves, <laughs> I'm not too excited. Shoot. I'm Sabrina. And I'm Alex. And we're joined by friend and producer, Nick.
1: How's it going, kids and kiddos?
0: We got too excited about Francis Cornish. (laughs) It's just, it's kind of like a lighter one. Yeah. Which is Compared to the past three. Yeah, Goulet was super dark. The previous one, Balladin was okay. Sad. Pegwis is pretty dark. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how much of Winnipeg History is like, it's actually pretty dark. Yes. (laughs) And I don't know if Cornish is like, that much better if you really think about the kind of person he is. Sure. Because Francis Evan Cornish is not a nice guy. Right. I don't know that much about him, but I, I'm aware of that much. Oh, man, I'm so excited to tell you all about him then. Oh, good. So I think we'll paint a picture of Winnipeg sort of as we get into 1870. So it's like end of the real Resistance. There's a handful of like wooden buildings and really dusty, muddy roads. Mm-hmm. And it does look kind of like an old like frontier town right it's the sure. old wooden storefronts the horses going up and down the street um there's a lot of jokes about the mud on the roads being terrible like oh, you'll bet. sink right into it bad yeah I bet eh and then outside of Winnipeg which is kind of just like portage in Maine and kind of north of it outside of that is farm communities okay and different parishes so like St. Boniface is still pretty small it's across the river St. Patel is there, also just kind of a small farm town. But the farmers come into Winnipeg to trade. Mm-hmm. People are coming up and down from the river, mostly. Right. Because that makes sense. the cause... roads are muddy. Yeah, <laughs> We've established this. Your horse is going to kind of plop right down into it. Ugh, and just have to, like, trudge through it. Yeah, so whereas a canoe might be faster. Yeah. Or a steamboat. Oh, yeah. We start to get into those in the 1870s right, as well. Yeah. Those exist. So at the corner of Portage and Maine is a bar. That was once owned by Henry McKenny, who is the father of Portage in Maine. Yes. Which is a story for another time. But by 1872, it's known as the Davis House. There's a bunch of merchants setting up stores along Main Street. And in the summer months, others set up shop in boats on the river. Little flat boats. Oh, that's fun. Little, like, market on the river. Yeah. Um, they're not doing it for, like, cool tourism reasons. This is, like, a whole, like, tax evasion thing. Oh. <laughs> where, like, they sell their goods <laughs> in the city and then they leave before they have to pay property taxes. Okay, got it. A lot of the merchants with storefronts don't like this. No, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so um, there are about 100 people living in what is Winnipeg. Mm-hmm. It'll go up to uh, close to 1,500 by 1873. So it's a pretty big jump in just a handful of years. Mm-hmm. But only 48 of those people counted were women in 1870. Oh, wow. okay. So yeah, mostly men, mostly young men, mostly traders. Mm-hmm. Just like a handful of women. I assume many of them are like the Métis spouses of sort of the long-term residents. Yeah. And the pre- provincial government is around by this point in time because they were founded, right? right? So mm-hmm. they are founded in 1870, but they don't have a legislature yet. Okay. So they are meeting out of the home of A.G.B. Banatine. Oh. <laughs> who we heard about in our ballinden episode. Yeah. He's her nephew and he is now one of the wealthier merchants in Winnipeg and he is hosting the province in his estate. <laughs> I feel like a lot of kind of early um, political stuff was done in people's houses. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, And this sometimes goes wrong when those houses burn down. Oh, no. Did it burn down? <laughs> we'll get to that. Okay. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> There's also a handful of newspapers. There's uh, three main ones, the Manitoba, the Nor'Wester, and the Métis. That's crazy to have that many newspapers for that few people. <laughs> no, there's like... 300 people, and they all have very different political interests. Yeah, because like the Manitoba's kind of allied more with like the liberals mm-hmm. generally. The Métis, obviously, with the French Catholics across the river. There's yeah. very different alliances going on with these three papers. Yeah, and each of them has a run of like 80 papers. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, they don't last for very long. There's also a really brief one in the 1870s called Quiz. Okay, that runs for about two years. Huh. And it's, like, a satirical newspaper. Okay. It's really weird. Yeah. And because it's, like, a satirical one, it's always comments kind of about, like, the goings-on in the towns. So you're like, I don't know what they're talking about. Everyone kind of has a nickname. <laughs> so that one's not, like, a reliable source to use. Mm-hmm. But this is Winnipeg. It is a growing town with more newspapers than it probably needs. Sure. <laughs> no women. Right. And then... Um, we got lucky that we have a guy named Alexander Begg writing down all of this stuff. I think you must have used oh, his sources at yes. some point. Yeah. yeah, he, he comes up, um, I used him a little bit for the Riel episode, he was, or for the Goulet episode. He's like, Ugh. like, not super reliable. No. Like, they're just, just some of the stuff that he decides to include or not include. Yes, it's very much what he personally wants yes, exactly. to talk about. So Alexander Begg is a uh, basically a local historian at this point. Like He writes um, a book called Ten Years in Winnipeg that runs from 1870 to 1879. Hmm. So that covers basically my entire time period for okay. this Okay, oh, that's handy for you. But a lot of it is a fairly like dry recounting of, like, well, in March of 1872, a boat pulled up to the river, and this guy came off, <laughs> and it brought 80 kegs of rum. Yeah, Beg, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, that's. I a mean, man paid $20 in taxes on July 1st. No, like if people remember from the previous episode, the whole thing about Parisienne, Beg's recounting of that was like Parisienne was ar- arrested and got some injuries. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there were definitely some <laughs> gaps. Yeah. Yeah, so can read through it and then kind of cobble it together. Yeah, from there. it's at least a timeline, right? But. Uh, in Begg's book, he actually writes fairly repeatedly and reliably about this push to incorporate Winnipeg as a city beginning oh, wow. in 1872. So the first that uh, really comes out publicly about this is in the Manitoba Trade Review, another newspaper. <laughs> and Begg is writing for it, and he publishes a column advocating to incorporate Winnipeg as a city. And he writes, On the 16th of the next month, the legislature will sit, and it is well for us to take into consideration the propriety of cor- the propriety of incorporating our town. If we let this chance slip, who knows what others more enterprising may get ahead of us and thus change the whole aspect of the place in a few years. Hmm. Our province is bound to rapidly grow and we must not sleep, lest others alive to the importance thereof may incorporate a town just outside or not very far from our present limits. There are many benefits to be derived from an act of incorporation. Why not, therefore, hold a meeting of the older heads to discuss the matter? Okay, so he's saying, like, we want to be at the center of things. Yes, and if we don't do this, maybe, like, Uh uh-oh, St. Vitale might become the city first. Sure. I don't know if I buy the argument so much that, like, we have to do it because we need to be the first ones to do it. Yeah, I don't know. I guess they just assume that that means this will be the more important city. I don't know that that's necessarily true. And, like, there's, like, again, around 1,000 people in town by, like, 1872. It's not big. Mm -hmm. Uh, This article, though, that Begg writes is what kills the Manitoba Trade Review. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh. Yeah. What do you mean? Like, the article, the paper stops publishing. Okay, because the owner was a Mister Cunningham, oh, who comes oh. up in your episode? Is it the same Cunningham? It's the it same must Cunningham, the same guy. Oh my same God. Cunningham as the Goulet episode. He owns a lot of property in Winnipeg and does not want to pay increased property taxes that oh. might come with an active incorporation. Oh, so he stops publishing Begg's paper. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Wow. Hard stop. Yeah. Cunningham made a few questionable choices. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of people did. Yeah. So, um, other papers make fun of the idea. It gets put, like mocked a little bit because like we're a small town. What are we gonna do? But in response to the mockery, Beg fires off another edition of the Trader. He managed to convince someone else to publish this paper that's been shut down to get his rebuttal out. Oh, okay. Like he goes to a different printer and is like, "I just want to get my one little fact sheet." Yeah. Out to the town. He notes in his book that he writes later that every obstacle was put in his way by Mr. Cunningham. So Cunningham is trying to actively stop this from Man, happening. he's like, I really do not want to pay city taxes. <laughs> no, and he's really trying hard. So in his next article, Beg lists some more practical reasons about why Winnipeg might want to incorporate. Do you want to, like, spitball if we were going to become a city? Um, like, rule of law? Okay, interesting. I don't Very know. Very sensible. <laughs> um... I don't know. Are we talking about railroads at all yet? Not yet. Okay. Then I don't know. Number one reason, fire precautions. Okay. If there is a city, there is now municipal law that can be enforced around fire bans. Okay, like, yeah. Laws. (laughs) Municipal municipal services as well, I guess. Two, we will be able to have sidewalks on our street. The expense of which will be borne generally instead of as now by one or two individuals because the sidewalks going up before Winnipeg City was paid for by like the rich people in town. Right. Or I guess like, you know, you might want to put a sidewalk in front of like your store. You're not going to pay for it in front of your neighbor's store. That's a good example because that's what the McDermott's did. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think it was Andrew McDermott, I think, put up a sidewalk between his house to his store. Oh, fascinating. Because he could afford to do that. Yeah. But if everyone pays into the con- the like, communal tax pool, everyone gets a sidewalk. Right, hypothetically. Sure. <laughs> Four. Oh no. Point three. We all know where the town limits are, which is apparently a bit of a mystery. Still feels like a bit of a mystery. <laughs> who knows, if I'm honest, <laughs> who knows where anything is in this city? Four. We will be able to have our streets laid out regularly so that in the future there will be easy access from one point to another, as well as neatness in the appearance of the place. Now there is no such thing, and this individual or that one can plan a street on his property to answer his own individual purposes, irrespective of the community at large. Okay. So basically, people that own landers putting up their own streets yeah. going in whatever direction they oh, want. Oh, I see. So yeah. there's no, like, city planning. It's, int- it's actually hard for me to put myself in this mindset of there being literally no... No rules. No rules, right? No no government, no kind of... No structure. Yeah, no structure in that way. Yeah, of course. Who's going to build roads? Just whoever's there. And they can do whatever weird thing they want. Right. Though I think some people might argue Winnipeg is still kind of doing that yeah. today. <laughs> uh, another point was that we should just, like, regulate things. Sure. Why not? And then also, we could be the first city. Nice little feather in our cap, mm-hmm. but yeah, the main one is fire, which makes sense. Everything's made of wood. That's interesting because the um, Riel's provisional government were also talking about like fire prevention. I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, I guess it must have been. It must have been a pretty significant issue. I mean, if you go, there's an archaeology museum in Montreal where you had this whole game where like the city is on fire and you have to extinguish the buildings and oh, then I don't don't remember them stone. if I played that one, but so yeah. like you can lose a whole city pretty fast yeah. if there's one fire. They used to say in, in old Russia, because there wasn't a lot of stone, so everything was built out of wood, that every, like, ten or so years, a fire would come through and just raise the like entire town. <laughs> oh, no. So that's kind of what they're trying to stop. Yeah. By having laws. <laughs> um, so some people in town are on board and do hold a meeting to talk things out. Um, present is probably Alexander Begg. There's no note of him being there in the papers, but, like, he's involved in everything else. Sure. Um, W.F. Luxton is also there, who is a founder of the Free Press. Mm-hmm. Um, this little meeting approves the idea of incorporation and they suggest some potential boundaries for the city. This group isn't official. It's not really anything. It's just some guys voting on stuff. Okay. They're not part of the government. Yeah. They're just having a vote at some guy's house. All right. <laughs> I mean, I guess there isn't really anything in place yet, so. No, you can go to the Banatine House, I guess, and bug the legislature. Yeah. <laughs> but that's about it. But The Manitoban, another newspaper, continues to push back against the idea of incorporation. Uh, they write, in the matter of incorporation, some people seem to be getting almost crazy. Oh. They seem to imagine that it only requires incorporation to make the hamlet of Winnipeg jump into a great, flourishing, magnificent commercial city. For our own part, we cannot see it. To be honest, I mean, bad take, because it basically <laughs> did. <laughs> no, I know. Well, here's the thing. Begg writes in his book, if Mr. C- if the late Mr. Cunningham were alive today, he would see it. <laughs> okay. Because Cunningham wrote for the Manitoban. Ah, yeah. Um sorry. No, no. I lost my train of thought. There was nothing. <laughs> okay. So at the time though, Cunningham and the others were just bewildered by this idea because what they were seeing is Winnipeg exactly as it was. Yeah. Oh, I know what I was gonna I was gonna say. Um like it seems strange to rail so hard against it becoming a city because surely they know it's going to happen eventually. Yeah, I guess. Or do they think that we can like are are they thinking that they're like, Oh, we're building a new thing where we actually don't have any municipal services ever? <laughs> and I never have to pay my taxes. Exactly. <laughs> There's an alternate history of Winnipeg, where would become like a weird tax haven, I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I don't really know what their thought was And like they just couldn't just trying see to postpone it. it. I yeah, don't know. didn't want to pay taxes. Maybe just thought like if it takes longer they'd have more chances to push for what they wanted. Okay. I don't really know. Yeah. But uh, the incorporation campaign gets a new member later in 1872 when Francis Cornish rolls into town. Mm. He's coming from London, Ontario, and he, like Thomas Scott, was one of those proud Canadians stomping on in. Yeah. And he uh, quickly finds himself in the company of uh, John Christian Schultz and the like. Oh, God. So all signs are pointing to uh, him not being the greatest guy in the world when he comes into town. I mean, he's hanging out with Schultz already. Yeah, it's bad. Uh, Further proof of all of this, though, comes with what Alexander Begg refers to as the riots in Uh his book. So in the fall of 1872, there is a federal election and Manitobans get to vote. Okay. And they set up polling stations in different communities around the area. So for newcomers like Cornish and other members of like the Wolsey expedition, the Orangemen, they haven't been around long enough to vote. There's like a residency requirement that is like a number of years. Yeah. Except all of these people want to vote. They really want to vote so bad because everyone else that's voting is like a long-term resident and many of them are Métis, are Catholic, are French, are not aligned with their political views. Mm. So it kind of rankles for a lot of the Orangemen coming in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you can't just move to a place and immediately make all the rules, I guess. So, yeah, the name of a newcomer couldn't be entered on the voters list until the settler had been in Manitoba for at least a year. Okay. But because it had to be calculated By a person, it would sometimes take two years to get up to vote, just because it was like a guy going around counting. Right. If you were like on last year's census or whatever it was. So additionally, at this time, Riel is trying to run a Provence. Mm -hmm. Like he's trying to run for a seat in the federal government. Uh, And Prime Minister John Macdonald is trying to get uh, George Cartier set up as well. Okay. So there's some like big federal politics going on. Uh, Saint Boniface is campaigning pretty hard for Riel and his amnesty. Mm Mm-hmm. Because he still hasn't been granted amnesty by the country yet. Yeah. So he's running, but he wouldn't technically be allowed back in. Right. Yeah, which is super interesting. So also in St. Boniface, there's Andrew Wilson and Donald Smith running. Uh, John Christian Schultz is pro-Wilson. Okay. And he was so pro-Wilson that he seemingly was unwilling to let Donald Smith win. <laughs> what? Uh- so on September 18th... Um, The uh, Les Métis, the St. Boniface newspaper, reports the gathering of a large mob of orangemen outside of the St. Boniface polling station, which is at the home of Roger Goulet, LDR Goulet's son. Yeah. Uh, So among the mob is a guy named Stuart Mulvey and Cornish. Hmm. Cornish is in town for like two months and gets roped into this right away. Oh my god. So the mob demands the poll book from Goulet, or whoever is there, but whoever is running the poll booth refuses to hand it over. Okay. And in response, the orangemen start a riot. They have come armed with wheel spokes, and they begin attacking the unarmed Métis residents who have come to like Jeez. see what's going on. Yeah. Eventually, the mob finds the book. They burn it. Uh, Schultz's father-in-law, James Farkasen, is there. hmm Uh, he brings a gun. Oh my god. He drops to one knee, takes deliberate aim, and then starts firing over and over again. Except he is apparently a terrible shot. Oh well, well, thank goodness. He injures a few people, but no one's killed. Yeah. Uh, once the book is burned, the men. Return back to Winnipeg. They're pretty drunk. They're very rowdy. And Cornish decides to sort of take things up a notch. Okay. He tips over. Because that wasn't enough? No, never enough for Cornish. Okay. He uh, hops in the back of a wagon and begins sort of inciting the mob to go further. Huh. Um, other newspaper booths are damaged. Um, the lieutenant governor and the sheriff come out. And then Cornish calls the chief of police a toad-eating communist. <laughs> pretty sure I've been called that before. <laughs> <laughs> for different reasons, For though. different reasons, uh, the lieutenant governor has guards set up at the different polling booths, so with the mob unable to go burn other poll books, they turn to the press. Okay. They go to the Manitoban. uh They break into the office. Um, they break the press. They throw the typefaces away. They do the same to the Métis offices and the mm-hmm. Gazette. They destroy these offices so badly, the papers can't publish for over a month. Wow. And then when the Manitoban comes back, it has a whole section taunting the rioters for trying really? to destroy them. <laughs> That's funny to be, like, pretty badly, like, delta blow, actually. Like, be out of commission for a month and then come back like, (laughs) huh? You thought you won, but actually. So the Manitobans has been pretty anti-Schultz until this point. That's probably why they're attacked. Mm -hmm. The Métis is the Métis newspaper. That's probably why that's attacked. It's shocking to me how much sway this one guy had. The thing is, he wasn't even in town at the time this happened. Bizarre. But like Farquaharson is so involved in the riot that yeah. it seems likely that at least he was had some power in it too because it yeah. seems like Farquaharson was pretty like hand in hand with his son in law's goals for sure. And I mean Cornish at least seems pretty on board with Schultz's ideas as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, Schultz writes about the Métis office being destroyed. Okay. He says the Metis office print and type went out the window. And it'll be some time before Jean Baptiste can express his grievances again in print. Wow. So he's pretty stoked about yeah, this. Yeah, that sounds... cheese. And the story of the riot does reach Johnny McDonald, mm-hmm. who hears about it from uh, Adams George Archibald, who is lieutenant governor, and from Gilbert McMicken. Okay. Who is a spy for the government who was in town at the time. If his name's familiar, he was in our Lord Gordon Gordon episode. Oh. <laughs> because a lot of the Lord Gordon Gordon stuff is happening roughly around the same time. Mm-hmm. So McMicken notes that some roughs had caused the problem and says that Schultz, Lynch, Cornish, Mulvey, and Davis can at any time plunge into the wild disorder. Plunge us into the wildest disorder. So he identifies Cornish pretty quickly as, like, one of the major agitators in all of this. For the others, though, we have uh, James Spencer Lynch. He's a member of Schultz's crew during the resistance. And he goes into Ontario to kick up a fuss about Scott's execution. So he's one of the guys that goes around being like, he's a martyr. And then he later works at the Winnipeg uh, General Hospital. Oh. At okay. one point in 1874, he says the resistance was a ploy planned by the Catholic Church. Okay. Uh, Davis is probably R.A. Davis, who owned the Davis House, that big bar at Portage in Maine. Mm-hmm. Um, his bar was a hotspot for Wolseley soldiers. Okay. And uh, Davis works alongside Begg and Cornish to draft the incorporation papers of the city of Winnipeg a bit down the road. Hmm. We had an incredible number of bars in Winnipeg. Everyone was very drunk. I was trying to figure out the um which bar Goulet was in when he got chased. It was difficult to figure out. It was out. difficult because there there were so several many. options. So McMicken identifies like a handful of people of concern, but uh Archibald, Lieutenant Governor, was mostly concerned with Schultz. Mm-hmm. And he writes mostly to Johnny MacDonald about that. But MacDonald says, I know what you say about Schultz, but we must now treat him as a friend and supporter. This, however, should not deter you from pursuing a firm course in the way of vindicating the law. Nothing happens. No one's, like, punished for the riot. Things just kind of go back to normal shortly afterwards. It's interesting that the federal government seems so unwilling to step in with anything Schultz is doing. Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? Yeah i like, you know, maybe just they felt that his following was his too... His sway was too powerful, yeah. maybe. Uh, what does come out of the riot, though, is the free press. Oh! With the help of um, uh, William Luxty and John A. Kelly, mm-hmm. who let the Manitoban use their newspaper's printing press, uh, they start the free press. Cool. Uh, that's on the streets by November 30th. Um, after the election riots, they publish a whole thing with their uh, motto, freedom and trade, liberty and religion, equality and civil rights. Hmm. So as the year goes on, people start to talk more and more about incorporation. Mm -hmm. And they hold another public meeting in December of 1872. Beg is there, uh, Major Kennedy is there, as is Cornish. Is that Kennedy of the Kennedy Tea House, or is that a different Kennedy? I think it's related to, if not the same one. Kennedy Street is named for this guy, though. So Cornish is the one at this meeting to add an amendment to some of the group's motions. He proposes that the group should petition the province for incorporation. Okay. Until this point, they hadn't been doing that. Right. They'd just been talking. Okay. (laughs) So is that the, that's the official process, I guess? Yeah. Well, the province would have to sign the papers, right? Otherwise, you're just guys being like, we should build roads. (laughs) So Cornish finally is like, have you guys considered writing something? Right. (laughs) (laughs) So two months later, the group uh, crafts up these proposed boundaries for the city, and they create these four wards for Winnipeg. Each has two councillors. Oh, each has three counselors. Okay. And then they finally get the proposal to the Manitoba legislature in sort of spring of 1873. And they have their own thoughts on this. Um, and they begin to sort of change things around, um, mostly about financial stuff. They ban journalists from the meeting. Oh, interesting. But then a journalist sneaks in anyway and <laughs> finds out what all of the fighting is actually about. Okay, great. And a lot of it's actually about naming Naming the city? Yeah. Oh. So Winnipeg had been called Winnipeg since, like, at least 1865. Mm-hmm. Um, this is according to the Norwester. So the community has had a name for a while, but someone wants to call Winnipeg Assiniboine. Okay. Someone says Gary. All right. Not loving it. Neither of those ones pass. But one does. It is amendment to change Winnipeg's name to the city of Selkirk. Oh. Inc. oh. Incorporated. Huh. Present-day Selkirk didn't exist. Just I, yet, I so. assumed that, that would be very funny if they were like, Selkirk 2. <laughs> Selkirk 2.0. This yeah. one floods more. <laughs> Actually, that's the railway trick, is they're like, you think you're going through that Selk- Selkirk, but you're going through our Selkirk. Yeah. <laughs> um, people aren't happy about uh, this. Sh- that joke only makes sense if you know the <laughs> entire history of how we got the railway here. By the end of the episode, you'll laugh. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Or not. Or not. <laughs> and that's fine, too. You'll have to rewind. <laughs> you'll have to rewind, listen to that joke again. Then go back to the end, and yeah. then you'll get it. Uh, regardless, people aren't happy about the uh, proposed changes. Mm-hmm. They like Winnipeg as a the name. They don't okay. want the financial stuff being messed around with. And they start holding meetings to protest all of this stuff. And one of the comments was, and what had the house done with the wishes of the people? They had given the people a portion of what they had asked for and deprived them of the... Mo- of the most part. They had given the people an elephant and nothing to feed him. <laughs> I think he made up that expression. I've never heard that before. No, I haven't heard that either. <laughs> okay. So we don't have a premier at this point in time. Mm-hmm. We don't have one until 1874, but we have a chief minister. Okay. Our chief minister is Henry Joseph Clark, who had run against Riel in the federal election. Uh, both had resigned to allow Cartier to take the seat. Hmm. So the chief minister is in charge of the cabinet, but... The government is functionally controlled by Lieutenant Governor. Okay. Which is, at this point in time, Alexander Morris. Okay. The uh, namesake of my hometown. Oh. So, at some point in 1873, also, Clark goes to Morris and is like, could I be premier? And Morris is like, no. (laughs) I love that as a tactic, though. I mean, you know. You have to try, right? You you don't know if you don't ask. He gave it a go, and he was told no, and then he stopped. I'm going to try that. (laughs) To who? (laughs) Lieutenant Governor. (laughs) I'd like to see you try. <laughs> Hi, can I be premier? <laughs> um, also relevant to our story here is Curtis James Bird, who was the speaker of the assembly at the time. Mm. Bird's a local. His dad uh, was James Curtis Bird. Okay. And he was a Hudson's Bay trader who'd been in the area for, like, a long time and had so, so many kids. <laughs> uh, so Bird had been on the council of the Cinnaboya. He was a coroner in the area. He'd married into the Ross family. Mm-hmm. And then when the bill to incorporate was presented to the legislature, Cornish was the one to stand up and dismiss it and declare it out of order. Oh. Okay. So it's thrown out of the House. Huh. And what this meant is they could not present the bill again until the next session. Okay. Which is like a season, so it's going from spring and they can only do it again in fall. Okay. So there is like a pretty lengthy delay. Mm -hmm. And people do blame Bird for this happening. So a few days later, he gets a knock on his door from a kid in the middle of the night. And the kid is saying that someone is sick and needs medical attention. Bird is a doctor in town. Okay. So it's not like out of the realm of possibility. Is this like a trap? Well, okay. (laughs) So Bird says like, I'm not feeling well, go away. Doctor Cod's in town. Then the kid comes back and is like, doctor Cod's out. It (laughs) has to be you, sir. So Bird goes out. He gets into his horse and carriage, and he goes down towards uh, the Eureka House on Main Street. It's a hotel. Okay. He makes it as far as Brown's Creek, which is a uh, Main Street in Banatine today. Mm-hmm. When a voice calls out, eight or ten men rush up from the shadows, pull him <gasps> out of the horse and carriage, cover him on hot tar. Oh no! And run off again. <gasps> Wh- why? Because <laughs> he he threw the paper out. I guess. Okay. This is revenge. That doesn't seem that bad. <laughs> Yeah. I don't know if anyone knew how to, like, proportionally react to anything yeah. in the city. At Do you this think point part too? of the problem is that there's only 48 women in the city? In, like, 83 bars? Yeah. <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> so Bird is furious about this. He offers an $1,000 reward for any of the perpetrators. No one comes forward and no one is ever caught. Wow. So and that's, that's quite a bit of money at yeah. that time. Yeah, you'd think one of them would sell someone out, but no, they were apparently hmm. completely united. Wow. In Tarring Bird. It doesn't do much, though. So, like, the incorporation movement still held off until the next session of the legislature. Uh, spring brings some uh, pretty big federal news. Okay. We're going to get to in a second, because spring also brings a lot of water and flooding and ah. mud. And the newspapers in town make a lot of small talk about how bad the mud is. Okay, This is their, like, every page is, like... Mud's bad, folks. This is the 1870s equivalent of our potholes. (laughs) Yes. So, um, one paper writes, Mud exists everywhere, but we will back Winnipeg in the proper season against the universal world as having more stickier, deeper, nastier, and more all-pervading mud than we can produce in any other hamlet in Christendom. (laughs) And then they tell this joke. One spring, when it was particularly muddy here, a plug hat was seen slowly making its way on the street. A passerby picked it up and was astonished when he found he had uncovered the head of a man whose eyes were (laughs) barely visible above the mud line. Hello, said the finder of the hat. Ain't you afraid you'll get lost in the mud? Not a bit of it, gurgled the head. I've got a horse under me. (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) And then it finishes, joking aside, it is really very muddy in spring in Winnipeg. (laughs) It's a pretty good joke. It's pretty good. <laughs> yeah. So that is the uh, local situation in ah, spring, okay. is that there is so much mud. Right. But the federal news is that uh, John A. MacDonald and his members of cabinet are accused of accepting election funds from shipping uh, magnets, uh, Hugh Allen, hmm. to build the railway. Okay. This would force MacDonald to resign in November of 1873. When word of this reaches Winnipeg, people who are not fans of MacDonald, but not like for the cool reasons that people are today... <laughs> Um, They have this big party outside of Davis' house, functionally. So it's like Cornish and all of his buddies, they go to Davis' house to have a party. Yeah. They get uh, very drunk, and then they build an effigy of John A. McDonald's, like a big straw man. Yeah. They hop up on a whiskey barrel, and they burn McDonald in front of everyone in the street. Wow. Um, Someone at the time joked that there was more whiskey in Cornish than there was in the keg he was standing on. (laughs) Also a pretty good joke. You know, all bangers. Yeah. I'll give this to the papers back then. (laughs) Yeah. They were good joke writers. So when Cornish isn't doing this, like public mischief antics, sure. he is a lawyer.
1: It- this is his main <laughs> job.
0: <laughs> like, it is funny when you realize like, oh yeah, like actually rioting doesn't pay bills. <laughs> These people do all <laughs> have, have to have jobs. They all have day jobs. <laughs> a lot of them are just like doctors. <laughs> and Schultz is like a doctor, doctor in, in quotation quote. quotes. <laughs> So yeah, Cornish is a lawyer. That's what he was when he came to Winnipeg. He had been a practicing lawyer in uh, London, Ontario as well. If you listen to our Gordon Gordon episode, he's involved in the Gordon case. And in the summer of 1873, he was defending John S. Ingram in court. Hmm. Uh, Ingram is, he would later be our first chief of police, if that's why the name sounds familiar. Oh yeah, I was thinking I, I knew that name. So in the aftermath of that election riot, A. Joseph Dubek had gone to the courts to deliver a list of people he thought were responsible for the riots. Okay. He named Cornish on this list of people. He goes into the courthouse, and when he comes out, Ingram is waiting for him. He beat Dubek so badly he was left unconscious in the street and lost vision in his left eye. Oh, that's awful. Uh, Following the assault, Ingram goes to St. Paul, Minnesota, and then comes up to face trial in 1973 with Cornish as his lawyer. Wow. Because they stick together. Yeah. And that's the future chief of police there. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically his whole policing style, also. Um, So Cornish's defense of Ingram here hinges loosely on Ingram being drunk and young and stupid. Okay. And Dubik seems to just kind of want to be done with it. Oh, yeah. I think probably because being involved is not going to bode well for him. For sure. So the judge defers Ingram's sentence, and by August of 1873, he is a bailiff for the sheriff. Jeez. So... Maybe Cornish is a is a good lawyer in quotation marks. Like he is a successful lawyer. lawyer. <laughs> yeah yeah. And then he had one other iron in the fire for a lot of 1873, which was the capture of Louis Riel mm-hmm. Ambrose Lepine. Yeah. Le Pen Le, Pien. Le Pien. Um, So both men had fled south the states. Following the arrival of the wolves expedition, mm-hmm. but they kept coming up across the border. Pretty for, like they come, they come up for like, like see their families and stuff. Basically, they come up for like a birthday party and then scurry back across yeah. the border <laughs> before anyone can catch them. But there is a five thousand dollar warrant out for their arrests. Yeah, which is a lot of money. So it's known that Riel and the Pan are coming back. But it's also hard to catch people. We talked about this in the episode with Cornish, where he was just kind of like, or or not with Cornish, with uh, Uh, Schultz. Schultz. He's like around and everyone knows where he is, but no one can quite catch him. Yeah, there's kind of constant rumors like, oh, he's staying at so-and-so's house. Yeah, so it's the same here. And Cornish, much like everyone else involved in the Orange Lodge, is pretty determined to see these men face justice Mm -hmm. for what he perceived as a crime. Yeah. Um, Alexander Morris wrote that Cornish is lost to all social restraint and his orangism gives him a pass for evil. Hmm. so like he is going quite hard he actually arranges a raid on the home of julie riel okay this is Riel's mother and he threatens her and her family to try to give up riel's location more than once yeah they don't do it good
1: can i can i tell you how much five thousand dollars back then is worth today yes please One hundred sixty-four thousand eight hundred
0: seventy-one dollars so so that's impressive that they could just like they they must have had a lot of community support to have that kind of We'll, we'll, like, roll on yeah. their head and, and still be able to kind of come back and visit. So, shortly after this, Julie actually pulls Riel's siblings out of school because she's fearing, I think, correctly for their safety. Yeah. So, Riel evades Cornish. He is never caught by him, but he does arrest Lepien. Mm-hmm. Before 1869, he's a farmer in St. Boniface with a ginormous family. He's got 14 kids. Oh, wow. <laughs> and. He comes home from a work trip to find him about the land surveyors and then gets kind of swept up and everything else. Mm-hmm. He's the one that arrests Schultz. He's involved with the provisional government. And that's, I think, probably why Schultz has such a big grudge out against him specifically. So Cornish works with uh, Henry Joseph Hines Clark, uh, the attorney general. Cornish and Clark are not, like, friends by any means. I think mm-hmm. in any other way they were, like, enemies. Okay, But they were together on this. But they also co-opt in John S. Ingram, mm. that old chief of police. Right. Uh, and it's Ingram who catches Le Pien. Mm. He, he catches up to him on September 17th, 1873. And he does what he does best, which is punch him. Oh, boy. <laughs> is he is he actually, like, a police officer at this point? Or is he just a, a guy? He's a bailiff for the sheriff. Oh, okay. So he's, I mean, he might have just been acting as a guy in this. Yeah. I mean, it's not, you know, you can't just go and punch someone either way. Yeah. So he hauls him to uh, Upper Fort Garry under military watch. And then he splits, Ingram splits the reward with Cornish and Clark. Uh, Lepien has still, he has friends in town and his stint in jail isn't like the worst. He gets transferred to, uh, Fort Gary. Gilbert McMicken brings him champagne. Okay. <laughs> uh, and then they set a grand jury date for November 12th, 1873. And until then, he just kind of had to wait. Yeah. But in that sort of interim period between him getting caught and him ha- facing trial, um, the legislature begins to meet again. Okay. And the incorporation folks can get back up into it. Oh. They've been waiting all summer. They've been getting into other mischief. hmm like, arresting people. <laughs> um, they've got a chairman to their incorporation committee now, uh, James Henry Ashdown. Okay. And the group holds a meeting at the Winnipeg Schoolhouse. Lux, William Luxon's the secretary. This is a real, like, who's who of Winnipeg yeah. street names at this point. Uh, it is a very boring meeting. It is just touching up details oh, of the okay. bill that's going to the legislature. And on November 4th, the legislature uh, begins meeting again. And four days later, the bill of incorporation for the city of Winnipeg is passed. Okay. Winnipeg is now a city. Wow, exciting. There's uh, apparently not much fanfare in the legislature about this. Okay. But outside of it, there's some excitement. Yeah. Um, the Manitoba and the Nor'Wester Free Press writes, Although four years ago we were hardly entitled to the name of village, in a few years we may expect to have the right to be called not only a city, but a large one at that. Hmm. Gas in our streets and houses, city passenger railways running in every direction, Nicholson's pavement on our streets, a grand central railway station, fire alarm telegraph and steam fire engines, waterworks, and small boys running around selling daily Manitobans. <laughs> <laughs> Only three cents a paper. <laughs> <laughs> That's cute. And most of that did come yeah. to pass. Yeah. Uh, it continues, As such will be the city of Winnipeg ere long. In the meantime, gentlemen, step forward and name your mayor and alderman. Okay. Because it's an election to be held. Yes. <laughs> so they do shoot up fireworks over the city. Uh, and it only took the uh, tarring and feathering of a government official <laughs> to make it happen. <laughs> only one tarring? <laughs> I know. Outrageous. So set the election for uh, January of 1874. So you've got like kind of like a little over a month to get your name in the race. Mm-hmm. But then the Japan's trial begins. Yes. It's a lot going on. It's a real jam-packed like few months in Yeah, city. <laughs> Yeah, it is. And this is still sort of the like, quote, like reign of terror period as right? well. Right, Yes. So I will say here, the trial is something that we should probably do more on later on, because, like, yeah. we have access to the whole trial. Yeah. That's just online. Yes, it's really cool. Um, Like, a lot of that did come up in the last episode, or, like, not, not the trial itself, but stories, um, witness accounts from it, I used in my account of the death of Thomas Scott. Yeah. So. Yeah, we're not going to talk about it too, too much. Yeah. Uh, when the jury meets in November, they have a mixed jury. So it's uh, Métis and English and okay. French residents. Um, there is a Higgins and a Henderson on the jury for, like, familiar street names. Yeah. Uh, Lapine Lepine, Lepine pleads not guilty. And the crux of his case hinges entirely on jurisdiction. Right. Was the government in charge or was it not? Mm-hmm. They don't really set a trial date here. They apply for bail. He gets out on four grand. Um, AGV Banatine pays for him or helps pay. Oh. And then he makes bail. Yeah. And then just kind of hangs out until his actual trial happens. And that takes longer still. Right. This is a real drawn out process over like two years. Yeah. So he's out on bail. Cornish is not actively involved in trying to capture him. And he's going to work as a lawyer for the crown during the trial itself. But with that thing not happening right now, he can run for mayor. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) So he spends December campaigning. Mm Mm-hmm. Um... Also, uh, Winnipeg's first big fire happens in 1873. Oh, how exciting. <laughs> uh, AGB Banatine's home burns down. Oh, no. Uh, where the province had been meeting. Yeah. Including all of the provincial legislative records. It's oh. kind of- <laughs> Some are pulled <laughs> out, but a lot of them are burned. <laughs> so essentially, the legislative building has burned down. Yeah. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> so they hold a pretty big election meeting in early December with a huge turnout of voters, but with one exception that Schultz was not present. Okay. It's just odd he's not interested in Winnipeg politics at this point in time. Yeah.
1: But he's maybe, not there. Maybe he's
0: only interested in things that involve more rioting. <laughs> maybe. It's like, democracy, no thanks. Uh, one paper noted that uh, Schultz seemed to go on the theory that rowdyism was essential to the very existence of a public meeting where he was present. There you go. <laughs> so no one seemed to miss him much either. Yeah. They were like, oh, go- thank God, this guy's not here. Oh, we I'm can like- just like, have a normal conversation. <laughs> So they meet, uh, they announce a couple mayoral candidates. People have been trying to get AGV Banatine to run. Yeah. And he has um, refused constantly to be oh, involved yeah. in municipal <laughs> politics. This man has no interest in it. So Banatine won't run, but William Luxton will. Okay, He's performance as a candidate, and so is Cornish. Mm-hmm. So Luxton and Cornish stand up and begin to sort of talk about their platforms. Alexander Begg notes that the men abused each other to their heart's content. <laughs> Okay. They were not super nice. No, that doesn't sound like it. Um, I don't know what happened to this first meeting. The Manitoban seems to think Luxton like, really did not present himself well. It mm-hmm. seems like he wasn't prepared to make a speech. Okay. And then he's called up to make a speech. Yeah. Uh, the Manitoban says that we have never met with such a case where a man made such an ass of himself. Oh, no. Uh, and Luxton's main argument in his favor is that he was the nominee of the Hudson's Bay Company. Okay. So I guess, you know, that's a point for or against, depending on who you are, right? It really depends on who you're talking to and what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And yeah, apparently Lux has spent a lot of the meetings being like, I don't know what's happening. I hmm. just turned up. Oh. Like, he was nominated. He didn't, like, vote for himself, right? Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. And I don't think he'd come prepared to do anything. Cornish, mm. meanwhile, seems to have, I think, been pretty, like, on the ball. Yeah. So people come out pretty staunchly in favor of Cornish, saying that he has previous experience as the mayor of London, Ontario, and how he cleared up the rowdy there. He has led several riots, first of all, <laughs> and... Right? Because I feel like he was mayor in Ontario, and we'll talk about his political career okay, there in a little yeah. bit. Like, they're not wrong about that, yeah. but his career here, however, yeah. <laughs> is interesting. Yeah. So Cornish takes the stage and delivers this grand speech about how hard everyone worked for Winnipeg to become a city, and how honored he is to be nominated. Yeah. And then he says this. It would be foolish for any man without municipal experience to assume the office the first year. It is not my intention to say one disrespectful word of Mr. Luxton. But when the elections are over and I have been elected by an (laughs) overwhelming majority, I hope to shake hands with that gentleman and hear him say, well done, old boy. I respect the wisdom of the people of Winnipeg. I mean, I guess that's what we all want when we run (laughs) in an election. I would, you know, all I want is to win hands down with an overwhelming majority and, and then have... have the other man respect me. <laughs> <laughs> I want to win an election and make no enemies. Yeah. I want to come out of this with only friends. So after Cornish's speech, Luxon steps forward and says that he is not actually the nominee for the Hudson's Bay Company. Oh, what? Yeah, this is the whole thing where people keep accusing each other of being nominees for the Hudson's okay. Bay Company. So the Manitoba thinks Luxon is. Luxon thinks he is not... Right. And then Luxton challenges the crowd to say who said that <laughs> and who was working with the Hudson's Bay Company. It's a wild campaign <laughs> speech. Oh my god. Uh he also mentions that he was nominated by around 30 Winnipeggers. He also says I was never caught in a midnight revel with HBC officials. <laughs> okay. That's really funny to get up on stage at like your first campaign event and be like, Who said this about me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can't. This first meeting must have been insane. Yeah. Because, like, everyone kind of frames it a little differently and who was saying what. Uh. um, Luxon also talks about Cornish's history as mayor, mm-hmm. but in less positive terms. So I think now is maybe the time to tell you about Cornish's past. Okay, what, we, what he was up to in Ontario? Uh, yeah. So the London, Ontario Free Press wrote a comment about Cornish following the 1872 election riot, because word of that reached them. Um, they write the outrageous conduct conduct with which Cordish is so distinctly charged is quite in correspondence with his whole career in the past upon his departure from London there were many who while strongly disapproving of his record at home were disposed to forget his past delinquencies. We now have convincing evidence that the personal feeling of desperation which is which promoted his removal was more deeply seated than first supposed and that the boast with <laughs> oh God, And that the boast which he is reported to have made was not an idle one. I am going to Manitoba, and we will raise hell there. Huh. Well. Yep. Yep. He nailed that. Yeah. Started a riot within his first couple of months. I mean, completed his objectives. (laughs) Nailed it. Yep. (laughs) So, people in London aren't surprised when they hear about that, because... He had kind of a record as, like, a rowdy politician in London That's, that's as well. really interesting that they, like, they heard about that and they were like, oh, we know this guy. Oh, boy, do we ever. <laughs> I mean, also, I feel like if a guy named Francis Evan Cornish says, I'm going to Manitoba to cause problems, and you hear about a guy named Francis Evan Cornish <laughs> causing problems in Manitoba, you're like, oh, I can't I those if, I wonder if that's the same guy. <laughs> So Cornish is an alderman in London from 1858 to 1861, and then is mayor in 1861. Uh, he is a well-spoken uh, politician. He gains followers pretty quickly, but also gained a reputation for being rowdy and like getting into fights. Yeah. Um, by 1855, a political rival had printed out a broadside with the headline, Francis Evan Cornish is hereby branded as a coward and no gentleman. Okay. I do not know what caused this. Interesting. But he's making enemies. Sure. So, to win the election, allegedly, Cornish bribes soldiers to move into London for a day, get the franchise vote, and then leave. Oh. Uh, and so he becomes the mayor. Mm-hmm. Uh, at one point during his term, he gets into a pretty public fight with uh, Major Bowles. Um, a history of the, like, city itself noted that Cornish weren't mayor. The whole thing would have been dismissed as, like, a drunk just attacking a guy unprovoked. Yeah. But the military almost left London completely over it. Wow. Because it was a government official fighting the military. Yeah, uh, Well under the influence, so well absolutely, dr- like, tanked, mm-hmm. he rides his horse up and down the pedestrian walkway of City Hall. Okay. Through the arcade, up and down the stairs. He's arrested for being drunk and disorderly. Yeah. He is arraigned in court for the next day. Um, He's also the chief magistrate of London, Ontario. Oh. So he is the judge. Okay. So he appears in court. Where he tries, prosecutes, and defends himself. Great. (laughs) The story about this is that he, like, gets up to the judge's bench and, like, reads up the charges and then gets down and scurries to the prisoner's docket. (laughs) And then pleads not guilty and goes on this big speech about the evils of alcohol. Yeah. So, um, he fined himself. He then paid himself for a hard day's work. (laughs) And then took a judge's fee. Oh my god. (laughs) Uh, he loses the uh, mayoral election in 1864. Uh, because members of the city paid for a militia to guard the polling booths to stop any more election fraud from happening. Ah, uh, what a bummer for Francis Cornish. Yeah. So that's his track record there. Okay. I think probably people in London were glad to be rid of him. The judge thing is very funny. It's such a funny mental image. Yeah. Just, like, imagine the other people in court who were there for, like, any other crime and had to watch their judge. Oh my do god. This. Yeah, like, and they're up next. They're like, oh. Oh no. <laughs> It's like visibly hung over a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, then he comes here and then he runs for mayor again. Okay. Do you think he is going to have an honest election race? I do not think he is going to have an <laughs> honest his, election What? His, race? like, track record hasn't proven himself to you so far? <laughs> and we don't have the military guarding the polling booths here. No, and he already did try and, he already burned a poll book. <laughs> oh, yeah. And he wasn't even running that time, was he? No, no. <laughs> no. He was just involved. Yeah. So the Free Press, which is is Luxton's paper, uh, makes fun of Cornish. Mm -hmm. Um, Then the Nor'wester makes fun of Luxton. So the papers are pretty heavily involved in smearing both candidates. Um, But the Free Press highlights the fact that people in London who were respected opposed uh, Cornish's politics. Mm -hmm. It noted that a canvasser in the Cornish interest on Wednesday pleaded with a lady to use her influence in persuading her husband to vote for Cornish. And with an inducement to do so, he offered to present her with a goose for the Christmas dinner. Ah. So if you tell your husband to vote for me, I'll give you a nice a nice bird for the Christmas dinner. That is a wild form of bribery. Okay. Yep. I don't I don't know if it works. Yeah. I don't know if it actually happened, but it's a story that was told. I wonder if it's less illegal if you give someone a goose than if you gave them like ten dollars. <laughs> 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 I guess. How much do you think a goose was worth? Like I... a good a good hearty goose. I have, I have no idea. It'd probably be worth a good chunk, right? Yeah, maybe not ten dollars, but yeah. Um. It also notes that uh, Cornish. This at uh, this time, the free press accuses Cornish of being a nominee for the Hudson's Bay Company. Okay, they say everyone is <laughs> sure. Um, but it claims that um everyone who voted for Cornish and whose vote was purchasable is eligible for a drink of whiskey. So oh. he's buying everyone around.
1: <laughs> okay, gooses. Geese.
0: How much is a goose worth in well, like a goose 1870? today
1: might be forty to ninety dollars. Okay. But in eighteen thirty ish, um a hundred bucks goes for three thousand two hundred and ninety seven dollars today.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So I don't know That's, what I the... don't know how to do that math. <laughs> Me neither. So it might be like maybe a goose is five dollars. I don't know. Like yeah. yeah, I don't know how to do that math either, but <laughs> There, someone at home can do it.
0: Someone at home can do that and decide how much a goose costs. <laughs> would you? Would you be bribed? Would you vote for someone for a goose? This is an ethical dilemma to post, yeah. everyone. How much do I care about the election? Otherwise, <laughs> so by the time January of 1874 rolls around, the free press is in full swing pushing this idea that Cornish is in the pockets of the Hudson's Bay Company. Mm-hmm. Luxton is accusing Cornish of bribery, saying that Cornish took the hand of, um, like a guy in Winnipeg. He took his son's hand. And said, goodbye, my little boy, and then left a half-sovereign in his hand. It's like, okay, the geese aren't working. I'm gonna go for sons. I'm gonna go for people's kids now. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. Also, um... Pulling coins out of children's ears (laughs) all over. Uh, So people are like, ah, he, like, left money in the hands of an innocent child. (laughs) And then Cornish, like, leaves before the man can be annoyed about it. Okay. Um... The free press also claims that they have the half-sovereign at their office, and people can come look at the half-sovereign (laughs) construct of bribe a childhood. No, that's silly. I don't think they could prove that that was, in fact, the half-sovereign. No. It's a silly election all around. Yeah. Um, Bribery at the time was, like, really common in elections, so, like... It's not weird. It would have been weirder if Cornish wasn't doing it. Yeah. I would have been shocked if he was like, no, this is going to be a clean election. But the methods in which he's doing it are very funny. Yeah. He seems to be going mostly for wives and children. I guess going over who has sway over the head of the household, I guess. I don't know if I would listen to my kid, though.
1: Maybe it's not bribery if you're not directly bribing the person who can vote. Because women can't vote then, right? Yeah. Yeah. No.
0: He's trying to find a little loophole there, maybe. 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 Yeah. Yeah. But, like, imagine if your kid came up to you and was like, Daddy, Daddy, this man on the street gave me money and said you should vote for him. <laughs> so, election day finally rolls around in on January 5th, 1874. It is apparently a clear frosty day with wood smoke curling from chimneys and stovepipes. So, like, oh. a cozy winter morning. And then business is almost entirely suspended except for hotels and salons. Or saloons, because those were busy because people were drinking. Yeah. Uh, at 10 a.m., the polls open and the rush is on. Cutters and sleighs cause traffic jams as eager citizens hurry to record their votes. Their choice entered for all to see, besides their names in the poll book. Hmm, they it not anonymous? Yeah, it's votes. not anonymous. I do like that everyone's so eager to be involved in municipal politics. I mean, how involves everyone getting Winnipeg declared a city? It yeah. would be very embarrassing if they all pushed for it and then no one voted. <laughs> So we know based on published voters lists that there were 388 eligible voters in Winnipeg. Okay. Cornish beats out Luxton with 388 votes. Hmm. Luxton gets 178 votes. Now listen, we just established that my mental math isn't great. <laughs> However, do you think do you think that adds up? It does not <laughs> add up. <laughs> Cornish has a majority of 208. Yeah. Which doesn't exist. Right. So what's happening here is technically legal, okay, in the most baffling way possible. The election law at the time allowed property owners to vote once per property. Oh. So Cornish went to his friends that owned multiple pieces of property and were like, "Vote right. for me more than once." That's interesting. And like what counts as like a piece of property? I have no idea. Yeah. Is uh, it, like, you know, if you're like if your house and your store are on the same piece of land, is it only one or is it yeah, two? Yeah, I, I don't know. I can only imagine the, like, fighting about yeah. the logistics of that one. Uh, Luxton argues that Cornish's lead is probably closer to, like, 34. Okay. And they do actually shut down that loophole pretty fast. I mean, election. that yeah, that makes sense. Because that's a baffling way to win the election. Yeah. And I'm sure the people counting the polls were like, what? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So, we have our mayor now. Okay. Our council has also been elected. We've got the incorporation paper, uh, papers. All we need now is a place to put them. Okay. But as we've established, there isn't really any place for government to meet. The legislative building burned down a month ago. <laughs> yeah, the legislative building in air quotes. A guy's home burned down a month ago. <laughs> yeah. So, they rent a room on the second floor of uh, Mr. Bentley's store on Main Street. He ran a uh, hardware store elsewhere in the area called Noah's Ark because of how often that specific area flooded. Oh. (laughs) That's pretty good. It's a good joke. (laughs) Thankfully, City Hall was not in the flooding building. They're in his other store. (laughs) Okay. Um. A report of it uh, reads that the council chamber has, concerning the short time which was devoted to its preparation, been fitted up very nicely. Convenience, comfort, and a little in the matter of embellishment are being looked into. Oh. The building is also the police court and Cornish's office. Okay. It's just the second floor of a store. Sure. So they start um, establishing their standing committees in, like, finance, printing, board of works, market, fire and water, property Mm -hmm. assessment, normal city stuff. Yeah. Uh, They approve uh, $250,000 for sewer construction, buying fire engines and firefighting equipment, waterworks construction, the construction of a market house, city hall, and police station, the widening, opening, and straightening of streets, grading and improving sidewalks, and construction of sidewalks and bridges. Okay. All good stuff. Normal city stuff. Mm -hmm. Construction that begins uh, on our first city hall. They lay the cornerstone in August. This isn't like the big gingerbread city hall that people think of. Yeah. I talked a lot about that one in a different episode of the show. Uh, but the first uh, city hall they built is also bad. <laughs> it's so bad. It's built in like, it kind of sinks into the mud right away, because as we've established, everyone is sinking into the mud all the yeah. time. This is one of my, like, fun history facts that I like to p- tell people. I'm like, we've had three city halls. And one of them collapsed into a mud pit. Yeah. <laughs> one was the center of a bizarre scandal. Yeah. Now we're on a third one. The first one, all that was left was just a little peak of the roof. (laughs) Poking above the mud. So in spring of 1874, Cornish goes out to Ontario to inspect uh, Ottawa's waterworks system to see if they can use it here. Uh, It's funny to hear him doing just regular mayor stuff. Here's the thing. His term as mayor is so boring. Okay. I was like going through everything and I'm like, this guy's got to be up to something. Like, he spent the past two years doing nonsense. Yeah. And no, he he looks at waterworks. Huh. Um someone need to put him in power to calm him down, yeah, apparently. Apparently. So like Winnipeg at the time is in desperate need of a fire prevention system, and mm-hmm. you can only really dig the wells for that in spring and in summer. Yeah. So he has to go like right away. Um, well he's gone the Board of Trade, um, tries to find a centrally located post office, they form a temperance lodge, and they force a guy to retire from council a uh, Alderman Scott has some military connections they're concerned about and they oh. boot him out and he's okay. replaced by uh, a reporter J.R Cameron hmm. and then Cornish comes back he says he likes the waterworks in Ottawa mm-hmm. they don't really have the money to do anything as big as like an Ottawa waterworks system in Winnipeg <laughs> at this point in time but you know what a great Winnipeg story we're like we went and saw something in another city it was great we can't do that <laughs> we can't afford this here yet. Uh, during this time, though, Cornish is still working as a lawyer. Okay. Because mayors don't... It didn't pay a whole lot back sure, then. And I guess. You were only really mayor for like a year. Yeah. It was a pretty short term, so... People normally still had their like day job. Yeah. So when LePan's trial rolls around, he gets involved as the prosecutor. Mm-hmm. Or he assists the prosecutor. He's not like the main prosecutor in the case. He's also involved in the inquest following Gordon Gordon's death. Oh. Because it's yeah. all kind of happening around this point yes. in time. Yeah. It's a baffling time period for Winnipeg. So the main prosecutor in uh, the Lapine trial is Stuart McDonald, mm-hmm. and the trial is just really rehashing all of the rumors that have been sort of spreading around. You talk about it a lot in your episode, yeah, and all of like the things that are coming out of it. Um, it highlights the death toll though. Um, Lapine's lawyer uh, mentions five people killed over it, uh, including Goulet and Prisian, mm-hmm. and then probably others that didn't get reported weren't considered as part of this. Um, Cornish is predictably anti-Riel, anti-MIT, Métis, and very pro-Canada. Mm-hmm. During his closing speech, he says Scott was butchered by fiends in human shape.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, but the jury does find Lapine guilty of murder, but they recommend mercy. Mm-hmm. The thing is, uh, the Crown didn't take that direction. Hmm. The judge on the case was Edmund Burke Wood. He had a track record of bad judicial behavior. Okay. <laughs> excessive drinking. And he was one of many Winnipeggers taking part in Métis land grant schemes. So he was buying Métis' scrip and selling it back to either the government or others for more money than it was worth. Oh. That doesn't seem like someone who should be presiding over this trial. Interesting. He's a bad pick for this case. Yeah. So when the jury suggests mercy, Wood sentences Lapine to hang. Wow. The execution is scheduled for uh, January 29th, 1875. Hmm. So that's like a couple of months from now. This is now the fall of 1874. So, yeah, a couple months to go. Um, the Orange Lodge writes a letter congratulating Cornish for his conduct during the trial, and then they have this huge dinner celebrating Guy Fox. I mean, Guy Fox Day is the whole thing in the UK. Yeah, yeah, they have a big Guy Fox dinner. Yeah. Um, Wood also tries to, like the judge in the case tries to try uh, Andre Nault and LZR Lajeaudier for Scott's murder. Okay. Like, he's going after anyone, even yeah. remotely involved. Cornish uh, is involved in the Nalt case as well, but the jury can't reach a verdict on either of those. Hmm. And when they come back saying, like, we can't decide, Wood sends them back on both cases twice. Really? And then they're just released because they can't decide. Yeah. It's a hung jury or whatever. Yeah, rubber. basically. But, like, the people in government are really determined to see, like, punishment dealt, essentially. Yeah. Regardless of the actual, like, legality of it. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, you know, up until super recently before that, the government was still saying, like, oh, no, there's going to be an amnesty. Yeah, but clearly no. Yeah. So, Cornish has a nice little dinner from the Orange Lodge about how good of a job he did. Yeah. And by 1874, and like, or by late 1874, he had been appointed to a seat in the Manitoba legislature for Poplar Point. Oh, okay. So he's moving up in politics, which means he did not try very hard when the eighteen seventy five election rolls around. So he was like done being mayor, he was just he was like, kinda like, well, whatever. That was fun. I'm out. Yeah. Uh he had his very normal stint as mayor. The city gives him five hundred dollars as a gift, and then he gives that to the Winnipeg General Hospital. Oh, okay. Yeah. Random good deed. Super normal behavior. <laughs> yeah. For a man that historically <laughs> has not really done a normal thing in his life. Yeah. So he loses the second mayoral race to William Nassau Kennedy, who I've mentioned earlier. Uh, he's a military man who would come with the Wolseley Expedition. Uh, part of Kennedy's term as mayor is spent trying to convince the federal government to route the Canadian Pacific Railway through Winnipeg. Ah, oh. Now we're talking about the railway. Yeah. Um, and then in January, four days before Lapine's set execution, Governor General Dufferin steps in and stays it. His sentence is commuted to two years in prison with a permanent forfeiture of political rights. Hmm. Um, there had been actually a pretty considerable push to stop the execution in Quebec. Oh, interesting. So the Canadian government receives 252 petitions with 60,000 names on them. That's interesting. I knew it was stayed. I don't think I realized that that's why. Yeah, it was political pressure from Quebec, yeah. essentially. And commuted to only two years. That's pretty a pretty big change. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the politi- the permanent forfeiture of political rights is sure, that's, that's not great. that's significant, but yeah. So, um, in February of 1875, as well, Riel and Lapine are both offered amnesty in exchange for five years of exile. Riel takes it; Lapine does not. He uh, lives in Manitoba and Saskatchewan until he dies in 1922. Hmm. So he is around in the area for a very long time. Yeah. Um. So that's kind of the end of that story of the resistance. Um, Cornish is still around. He's the um. He's involved with the Poplar Point riding for the rest of his life. Oh. But he is still involved in federal, provincial, and municipal politics in the years that follow. At one point, he writes a letter saying that the General Hospital should stop dumping waste in the streets. (laughs) Because it's making people sick. Well, yeah. (laughs) And he is right. That feels like foreshadowing for our next episode. (laughs) Yeah, I'm setting you up a little bit here. Um, He is the main opponent to Premier John Norquay, who is uh, our first Métis Premier.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Uh, And then... He works as a lawyer, and he still manages to get in trouble. <laughs> uh, inexplicably, though, he votes in favor of prohibition in 1875. That Okay, well, you know what I was just going to ask? And I don't know, maybe... Uh, like, do you think he, like, got sober or something? Because all his earlier stuff was, like, he's drunk burning John a- an yeah. FSG of John McDonald. He's drunk, like, riding his horse on, yeah. like, the lawn of City Hall. Did he stop drinking for a year and become... Like a normal racist, yeah. or not an insane racist. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's complete <laughs> speculation, but I mean, maybe. Um, so yeah, he is in favor of prohibition, but it's like not clear why. I mean, a lot of these like wealthier guys, like with the early prohibition rules, it was kind of like, well, you can't go to a bar, but like you can kind of still have your wine. Seller. Yeah, and often it's about like it's about like who should sell it, right? Yeah. So unclear where he's going, but then during a vote about pay for House members in the legislature, Cornish takes the floor and spoke for about two hours, conducted himself in such an unseemly manner that the House, to save itself from disgrace, had to adjourn for half an hour and close the galleries. Oh, wow. During the recess, the member last mentioned assaulted the doorkeeper because he would not allow the member to open the door. What? The member did not return after the adjournment. Okay. Weird. And, like, what was he ranting about? We don't. uh, I'm assuming uh, he didn't want to pay house members. Okay. It's not super clear because they don't really say what he talked about for those two hours. That's a long time to be like. Rambling. Be rambling about a a pay issue. And like, at what point in the two hours do you decide, like, this is actually embarrassing? Like, what does he say that's so bad they cut him off and are like, we have to end this? Yeah. An hour in, you're like, no, this is still fine. (laughs) Yep. Two hours. Two hours is the cutoff point, much. and then they, like, lock him out of the room. Yeah. He hits the doorkeeper. Jeez. So maybe not super sober. Yeah. Um, and then when we come around to, like, the end of 1875, we find out Winnipeg's previous city council had sold bonds at too low of a price. Okay. <laughs> so they don't have as much money as they thought they should have. Okay. One of those things. Sure. So Kennedy, the mayor at the time, expresses the belief that Cornish probably should have said something about this. Yeah. And then Cornish says, Kennedy would rather see the city go to mischief than interfere. (laughs) And then at one point, Cornish tries to move the post office to a better spot and then convinces uh, Bannatine to sell him his property and the next door property to Cornish Hmm. for half the price. Okay. So he's doing some confusing land swindling. Some kind of wheeler dealer stuff. Who knows? But then in the 1876 municipal election, Cornish is once again... uh, in trouble, oh okay. He's back at it. Yep. He's back at his favorite thing, interfering with municipal politics. <laughs> so he, um, W. B. Thibodeau, who is his sometimes law partner, J. R. Cameron, and George Elliott go to Mister Huggard's home. Okay, Huggard is Huggard's house is the polling station for Winnipeg's East Ward because mm-hmm. we just went to people's homes to vote. Yeah, because <laughs> we only had a rented city hall. We didn't have school gyms yet. One day. <laughs> Um, That's so, where my voting location is. I don't know about it. <laughs> <laughs> so Cornish tells Huggard that he and Thibodeau have a bet. And it's that Cornish accidentally voted for Kennedy. And he wants to see if it's true. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You can't look at the polling book. Sorry. Also, that he accidentally voted for Kennedy. Like, he writes the name oh, down. Oh, yeah. You write it down. <laughs> like, <laughs> It's not like you like just put the little X in, right? Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Huggard grabs the book and then finds out Cornish hasn't voted for either candidate. Okay, he hasn't voted at all. And Huggard then realizes Cornish has probably come to steal the poll book. Oh, again. <laughs> okay. So um, it breaks it into a fight. Um, the group tries to attack Huggard. They knock over the stone pipe. Stone so they pi- did. They did in fact come. To steal- yeah. Okay. They uh, blow out a lamp and they run off the poll book. <laughs> And then, inexplicably, here's the best part. tying these down or something. Look, maybe have two people with them. Yeah. Well, here's the best Hold part. Hold on to this. it really hard. After they run off with the pool buck, Cornish and Cameron go back to Huggard's house to ask for their hats back because they left what? them inside. <laughs> like, no. Huggard is standing outside threatening to kill them with a block of wood. <laughs> and then one of Huggard's neighbors comes by and grabs their hats and gives them, them and they leave. <laughs> would not give that man's hat back. No, like, that's my hat now. Like, okay, how about I trade you? <laughs> Your hat's for the <laughs> poll book. For the poll book. Pole book. <laughs> uh, so Cornish and Thibodeau are arrested. Okay. Uh, Elliot and Cameron literally flee the country and never come back. Oh my god. Cameron's, um, well, it was the editor of the Free Press at the time. Whoa. And he just bounces. Just, He's gone forever. Gone. Uh, he turns up as an editor for a paper in Hamilton a bit later on. Hmm. But, like, two men flee the country because of this. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Cornish and Thibodeau are fined uh, 40 bucks. And then, literally, months later, Cornish is appointed alderman in Winnipeg's West Ward because there's a vacancy. Oh, okay. You know, like, it's fine. Isman didn't steal two poll books. <laughs> um, During his election speech for this, because he had to, like, there was a vote, even though there was a spot for him. Cornish promises to unearth the deeds of the other aldermen. Yeah. And then gave advice to other election officers to take good care of the poll books. <laughs> Cornish. <laughs> you can't say that, man. You're the one that's doing this. Yeah. No one else is stealing <laughs> the poll books. Consistently you. <laughs> During his term, he continues to sort of be a pest on a council. Apparently his his calm stint as mayor was a one off. Okay. Um, he sits in the fire and water committee. He only attends one meeting. And then when everyone else is like, you got to attend these meetings, dude. Uh-huh. He's like, they don't really work for me, though. Like, they're at an inconvenient time. <laughs> <laughs> like, you, you've committed election fraud to be here. <laughs> so, um, council says, okay, you can stay on the committee if you promise to keep coming to these things. Okay. And Cornish says that he would make no promises to the gentleman and he would do his duty as he, not they, thought proper. Wow. So no. Yeah. He will not be attending <laughs> will these not meetings. Be attending the meetings. Uh, during a council meeting, uh, Alderman Allaway, uh, Allaway of um, Winnipeg Foundation founding fame, gets into a fight with Cornish over the CPR offices. And Cornish says that he would not be called to order by a puppy. Oh, okay. Uh, when the mayor interjects to be like, don't say that. Don't don't call your co-worker a puppy. Cornish amends a statement to Alloway isn't a puppy. He's a full-grown dog. And then insults him a bunch. <laughs> the mayor then says to knock it off again and yeah. say sorry. <laughs> uh, Cornish apologizes to the whole canine race. <laughs> <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? The mayor tells him to apologize properly this time. <laughs> This feels like fighting with a child. Yeah, this feels like trying to get, like, my (laughs) four-year-old nephew to apologize for something. So the mayor says, apologize nicely, basically. And Corner says he would take it all back as he did not wish to cast reflections on the whole canine race, (laughs) for which he had the most profound respect. (laughs) The mayor kicks him out of the meeting. Yeah. And then tells the police to put him in a cell if he tries to come (laughs) back in. (laughs) Oh my god. Yeah. Why is he like that? I don't know. <laughs> uh, He decides not to run in 1877. He's still serving for Poplar Point. He makes one more go at running in 1878. And there's a story I cannot prove. Okay. That during one of his last election bids, he has this big gambit to mm-hmm. win. And it's bigger than stealing a poll book. This time he steals his whole political opponent. What? <laughs> So he kidnaps his political opponent, Okay. hides him away. Who's the political opponent? It's not clear. I haven't actually been able to like, validate the story. Okay. It gets passed around a lot. Sure. Okay. So the story is that his opponent is hidden away somewhere and Cornish publicly <laughs> accuses him of corruption. Okay. And then when the guy doesn't turn up to be like, no, I'm not corrupt. <laughs> Meanwhile, the guy's in an attic being like, no, I'm no. not corrupt. <laughs> uh, Cornish is then like, aha, his absence is an admission of guilt. <laughs> Jeez. But so that may or may not be May or may not be rumor. true, but also not like not surprising, given his track record. The fact that we can't say for sure whether that was a thing he would or would not have done. Yeah. like At no point did he seem to like really stabilize out. Yeah. He seemed always kind of like, at any moment, this man would be like, I'm going to steal a pull book again. Yeah. Like, you can't stop me. I've never gotten in trouble for it before, and I never will again. That's true. This man has never experienced a consequence. No, the one time he did get arrested, he tried himself. Yeah. And then paid himself for the experience of being on trial. Yeah. <laughs> um, he doesn't really have a chance to get um, a seat again, however. He has a brief bout of stomach cancer and dies in November oh. of 1878. Uh, he left behind, actually, a pretty good number of mourners. His mm-hmm. funeral is well attended. People seem to, like, like him. And then his estate is auctioned off. Probably if you were, like, not actively fighting with him, he was probably a fun guy. But, like, <laughs> yeah, I bet if you were like any member of the Orangemen, yeah, real hoot to, pal- to party with. I bet he was, yeah, a lot of fun at the old saloon. But. <laughs> <laughs> so, his obituary makes no mention of Cornish having a family, hmm. which is interesting because he did have a wife. Oh, uh, he had married a Victorine Clench in 1851 in London, Ontario. Okay. They had two sons. In that fight Cornish got into in Ontario with that uh, major. It was because the major was bragging about sleeping with his wife. <gasps> oh, no. <laughs> we uh, don't really know what happens to her, however. Hmm. She doesn't come to Winnipeg with him. Oh, She stays behind. Her maybe, son stays Maybe behind. she was, in fact, sleeping with the major. She might have been. But also, like, he doesn't leave her anything in the will or his son's. Oh, wow. His entire estate is, like, sold. So they may have just been completely estranged, I guess. Yeah, I mean, is that really that surprising? No, I mean, no. <laughs> that actually feels like the perfect way to like get away from your insane husband he's like i'm moving to winnipeg to raise hell and you're like have fun Atta boy. yeah <laughs> see you never uh, i will be staying here, <laughs> here. <laughs> uh so that is the career of francis evans cornish incredible i love that this is the episode where winnipeg is formally established <laughs> yeah that's the guy that's the guy he's our first mayor we name a street and a library for him Yep. Yeah. um his first term as mayor is so small, though it's just a year. Yeah, but he just kind of puts like public infrastructure in place. He apparently gives us our motto of commerce, prudence, and industry. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But over the course of those five years from Cornish becoming mayor and his death, Winnipeg changes a lot. Like it is big growth. It is that like, oh, we are a flourishing city that people said we could never be. Yeah, Cunningham got it, it wrong. C- Suck it, Cunningham. <laughs> So um, in 1874, Winnipeg has 408 buildings, 17 hotels, 8 saloons, 23 boarding houses, 27 manufacturers, and 421 other buildings. This math doesn't really add up. Okay. <laughs> it was in Begg's book. All right. I was trying to cobble stuff together. Yeah. There's a lot of buildings. Sure. Sure. Uh, They add 80 new ones in 1877 alone. There's now paved sidewalks. By 1879, there's a thousand houses. Mm -hmm. And then there's more stores. There's more steamboats and people coming in from all over. By 1880, there's about 20,000 people in Winnipeg. Wow. That is huge growth. Yeah. And there's just one thing that Winnipeg uh, needs now.
1: That's it? Yes. For 1880,
0: Winnipeg is a city. Yeah. What do we need to make us even better? We need a railway. We need a railway. Exactly. (laughs) So if you, like me, had to read a bunch of meeting minutes for city council across the 1870s, yeah. the railway is a constant pressing concern because, of course, the Canadian government has been building a railway, just hasn't quite got to us yet. Yeah. But everyone knows the intent is that one day the railroad is going to come to Manitoba. It's just a matter of where it comes through. Selkirk or Selkirk 2. <laughs> <laughs> so... There's the joke. (laughs) There's the joke. Yeah, the people pushing for Winnipeg's incorporation knew that Winnipeg was never going to be profitable unless it had a rail line. Mm -hmm. The Hudson's Bay Company also wants the rail line to come through here because they still own 2,000 acres of land in the city. Right. That's like the land they owned was kind of like south of Broadway Mm -hmm. near Upper Fort Garry. It was the uh, Hudson's Bay Company reserves at the time. Okay. So, like, they had company housing, basically. Sure. So, when the government of Canada is like, we need to create this rail line, we need land. Um, they start getting treaties from uh, various indigenous groups to try and, like, take the land, essentially, to start building this railroad. Mm-hmm. Um, and when looking at a route across the country, the government of Canada had earmarked Selkirk as the Manitoba stop. It made sense because everyone knows that Winnipeg floods. Yeah, We are muddy. We are low. Mm-hmm. Every spring we get high water. Selkirk is a higher elevation. Selkirk doesn't flood the same way we do. Yeah, But the issue was, of course, funding. Um Prime Minister Alexander Mackenzie was undertaking things pretty slowly because he didn't want to like strain the budget, but that meant construction was going at like a snail's pace. Yeah. So like this is taking like a decade. Mm-hmm. So by eighteen eighty, Winnipeg has that twenty thousand people. We're kind of the hub of Manitoba. The rivers are our main connecting point thanks to Americans coming up through steamboats yeah. and the railroad coming up that way. There's a short rail line coming through uh, St. Boniface as well, but there's no like bridge Coming across the we weekend, oh, Okay, so that's being yeah. a boat across the river. Not um, super helpful. James Ashdown paid a three hundred dollar bonus to build a bridge across the river to access St. Boniface. Oh wow. <laughs> um when the government asks to please not put the railway or that bridge in Winnipeg due to flooding, yep. the Hudson's Bay Company produces letters from five employees in the city swearing that flooding in Winnipeg had not been bad here in recent years. Mm-hmm. These letters are lies. Yeah. <laughs> I need to be clear, they made these weird fake statements and signed them off and sent them in. I mean, I feel like to anyone who lives in Winnipeg, that's insane. Eminently clear. Um and then to sweeten the deal, the city of Winnipeg promises the Canadian Pacific Railway two things. Free land, no taxes. <laughs> <laughs> um I should add, though, that during the earlier discussions of the railroad, Cornish didn't want the city to, like, get involved in this at all. He had oh, some, really? like, concerns about, like, a rail monopoly. Oh, okay. So I don't there's know. A, there's a lot of, like, railway politics going on. Everyone had an opinion. They and had a lot of big ideas. Our, like, free press episode, we talked about that, too. Yeah. That there's a lot of railway stuff going on. Yes. So the government, the Canadian government, then goes to Selkirk and says that they can provide a bonus of $125,000 they'd build through there. Mm-hmm. Selkirk's not that big. Right. They cannot come up with that money. Yeah winnipeg gets the railroad hmm. yeah i feel like i've sometimes heard that described as like a bribe to bring the railway into winnipeg and not exactly no the the letters saying that we don't flood are a little more. that is that is for <laughs> sure different. dishonest yeah yeah they were tricked yeah so by 1882 you could take uh, a train from winnipeg to brandon mm-hmm. by eight, a little bit later it was 18 it was to regina and then, uh, it's also in 1882 that Ginger Snooks comes into Winnipeg. Oh! Wow. He had helped build the rail line. Oh, how, gl- how glad I am that he's appearing in our series. I thought I had to get him into the 151 somehow. Yeah. And I was like, all right, he comes in by train because he builds it. And then says he fought off a bunch of, like, railway hooligans oh. with a pickaxe <laughs> at one point. <laughs> sure you did. Okay, buddy. Uh, by 1883, the entire prairie line is complete. So you can now access the prairies. Cool. From Winnipeg. We are now a trade hub. Yeah. Um... This has a huge impact on Winnipeg's development, obviously. we become this major market hub. There's now 16 churches and 13 schools. There's now gyms to vote in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's streetcars by this point. They have horse-drawn runs going down the main roads. Winnipeg's main street is lit at night by electricity. Mm-hmm. Big deal. Wow, that's exciting. And, and there's plans to light more of them. Um, there's a couple of like quotes about how grand Winnipeg is. One was... Yet nowhere can you find a situation whose natural advantages promise so great a future as that which seems insured to Manitoba and to Winnipeg the heart city of our dominion. Oh. The heart city. That's nice. People have uh big hopes and big dreams. I will note that um this is around the time the city hall construction scandal is happening so oh, we yeah? do have a, we do have a pretty uh big financial recession where the city runs out of money and can't afford to build the city hall. Yeah. And then tries to leave it up as like an effigy or like <laughs> <laughs> a tribute to yeah. the follies of the previous council. So things aren't, like, all grand. But we've got, like, big dreams. We've got big dreams. And isn't that always the way this goes? Yeah. <laughs> but then, in 1885, a woman named Margaret Scott comes into Winnipeg. Yeah. Yeah, one of the many immigrants to come on the train. And she is going to be our subject next week. She well, is. Ne- two weeks two from weeks. now. <laughs> Not next week. So that is our Cornish episode. Yay was a fun little dive into it. That was a really fun one. <laughs> He's such a weird guy. What a weirdo. <laughs> it's our first mayor. I I'd love it. I think it's extremely fitting that he was um, our first mayor. <laughs> yeah. No one else, right? Yeah. We wouldn't have a boring first. Though he was boring. For the term as mayor, he was extremely boring. How <laughs> He must have been trying so hard. To be like, they can't find out. They can't know. <laughs> I gotta be just a normal person Listen. for one year. And he did it, and then he got to go back to saying, "Like I'd call you a dog, but it's an insult to other dogs." Yes. <laughs> okay, calm down. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is always a very fun one. Cornish was a big thing on my tours downtown. He's a blast to talk about. Yeah. Thank you so much to the Winnipeg Foundation and the Centennial Institute grants for supporting the project. Thanks as well to uh, the Province of Manitoba's Heritage Grants for their mm-hmm. support. Uh, as well to the Manitoba Historical Society and the Winnipeg Free Press. And to our patrons, of course. Yeah. We've actually had a lot of help with all of this stuff and it feels so great. Oh, it feels so nice to hear that people are enjoying the series and we're just really happy. Yeah, it's great. Uh, if you want to uh, see pictures, uh, see my sources, you can check that out on onegreathistory.wordpress.com. Uh, you can read a write-up of the episode in our Cornish Anecdotes in the Free Press on Saturday. And what else do we have? You can support us on Patreon. Mm-hmm. We do our bonus episodes. We talk about sources and stuff we left out. I have a very wild true crime thing oh. with Cornish that I'm okay. so excited to tell you about. <laughs> um, so you can check that out. We have fun bonus episodes that aren't about the 150. Yep. Yeah. yeah, just kind of little stories that we find here and there that like aren't quite enough for a full episode, but like are weird and fun there's a good one about um, marilyn one monroe on... being from winnipeg secretly which is not true but... we did one on doug henning the magician right yes um i've got a fun one coming up on a composer slash con artist Ooh. yeah that'll be a good one so you can check that out on uh, patreon.com forward slash one great history uh you can follow us on social media on facebook and instagram at one great history and we are on twitter at number one great history thank you so much for listening